let's get started. Do you want to introduce yourself for the pod? Yeah, so my name is Eva Bronsfeld, and I'm head of integrations at Commerce Tools. In that role, I'm responsible for all things to do with technology partnerships in the broadest sense of the word, so both from a technology perspective as well as more from a strategic and a partnership like management kind of way as well. And if you were to explain to me, like I'm five years old, um, could you talk about what is Commerce Tools and maybe redefine your job there in those terms? Yeah, of course. Like Commerce Tools is a completely headless uh, API-based commerce platform, not unlike Content Stack in that sense. Um, we have a bunch of things available, like APIs available for customers to build any type of shopping experience they would like. And a part of that is that we will need third-party systems in some cases to make that experience even better. So for certain customers, they might need a content management system or other systems or other customers might require payment providers. So we will always have to be part of that composable commerce kind of ecosystem. So these partnerships are just incredibly important for both commerce tools as well as our customers and our implementation partners. Now, when I joined, like uh, um, initially, there were a couple of these partnerships in place, but it wasn't really mature and wasn't really there yet to be like really considered to be a part of like the enterprise ecosystem that we are a part of. So that's actually what I do most of the time, actually bring those technology partnerships on board and make sure that they are integrating into the platform according to our best practices and the way we would like things to work. So you've explained commerce tools to me before um, in a way that I found really understandable. And I can't really replicate it <laughs> very well, but I know that you can do it. So because if I think like a commerce platform, I already start to fall down a little bit. I think maybe Shopify. So it has like stuff integrated in it that a person can go and set up their shop online. But that's not really what, what commerce tools does. So can you maybe explain a little bit more just what we're actually talking about when we say composable commerce, um, even, even honestly, even me coming from a headless world, I still find it a little bit difficult to know exactly what Commerce Tools does. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to use the, the analogy that everybody uses, but it is a very good one, right? It comes down to these building blocks, the Lego bricks of a, an, an architecture of a setup that you're doing. So what Commerce Tools effectively is, is it's a big almost like a state machine, like it keeps the state of all shopping carts, of all interactions that are happening with the platform and it makes those available to the uh, merchants in these smaller building blocks. So for example, there's an API to get products and product information. There's an API to create and add things to a cart. There's an API available to handle things around payments. So you get all of these tiny little components and as a customer in the, like the, the experience that you're building for your specific customers, you can build out these experiences using these different APIs in any way you see fit. So certain customers that we have use that as part of their in-car commerce experience. So in the car, right, you can actually pay for parking or, or get seat warmers or stuff like that. And other customers just do a more traditional type of e-commerce site like you mentioned before. Those are obviously just as well possible with commerce tools. Um, it's just really up to the customer to build on top of these building blocks that we provide. 
Right. So if I understand correctly, it's basically adding the kind of, it kind of makes things shoppable. Yes. You can use it to make things shoppable and it can be anything, right? It can be uh, the, the, the example that everybody kind of uses is like the voice type of commerce in a voice experience, but it can be just traditional commerce, but it can be in store. It can be in car, like I mentioned. Yeah. Anything. Okay, got it. And so when um, somebody goes to buy commerce tools, so one of the things I want to, I think I'm going to maybe set this up in the intro to this podcast, but I'm not (laughs) yet sure. So I'm just going to say it here um, Mm -hmm. for practice. But I want to assume that people, somebody listening to this might not even know what the world of B2B sales and marketing kind of is. Um, And it's a really weird and interesting kind of universe that both of us have somehow ended up in where... You don't necessarily like sell a product to a person, right? It's like you're 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 kind of a a tangled web of offers and messages and politics and wheeling and dealing that tries to influence another business's tangled web of politics and marketing and sales and influences. Um, so when you think of a commerce tools customer, who, who buys it actually and is it is it a, I assume it's a team of people as it usually is in B2B but what what kind of personality what kind of persona um, who gets excited about buying it yeah I think that's a that's a great question like ultimately the the way commercial traditionally has been positioned is like based on like even the introduction I'm giving is APIs building blocks right it's like a very technical kind of angle so the traditional audience tends to be a bit more technical as well, right? That's just the nature of the beast, I guess, with a more headless and and technical kind of platform. But what you're touched upon before, like with the fact that like B2B and, and, you know, like the the fact that there's so many different parties that are part of a conversation with a customer, I think that's something that you obviously see happening because the, the migration or, you know, well, yeah, I would say migration. Everybody's kind of fleeing away from the more traditional monolithic platforms that have you have one party to deal with, which could be nice as a customer. But on the other hand, you're also like they're monopolizing their position and sometimes raising the uh, license fee year over year. And you don't have any flexibility or freedom to get out of that. So more and more customers are looking for that flexibility and the freedom. And that's driven both by, I think, the freedom from technology perspective. So the fact that you use these APIs and you can use them anywhere, you're not dependent on the vendor building a certain thing before you can use it. It's like flexible enough that you can build anything you want when you want. On top of the fact that it gives you that composable commerce idea, right? It allows you to switch out different services. So if you're no longer happy with the provider for a certain part of that architecture, you can then switch it out with something else. Doesn't mean it will just fit in like automatically and that it's basically no effort required whatsoever, but it's going to be easier than having to do a complete rebuild from scratch. So if you combine all of those things, I think the the typical customers that are looking for these type of platforms like commerce tools would be both driven from a, a business perspective and being burned by the systems they had before or the way that business was being conducted in that way, or like the technology people, or actually today and the technology people that bring uh, like that need that flexibility that commerce tools brings. Right. So it sounds like the job of commerce tools is to 
both um, to obviously to enable commerce everywhere, but also to get marketing and business teams excited along with the technical teams about what's possible in this kind of new world of commerce. Yeah, I would say that's true. Although I would argue that the way the platform operates, the fact that there is no front end, like the headless nature of it makes it sometimes a bit harder to show, right? It's not as, let's say, sexy as that you have this completely fully integrated suite of products that seem to work seamlessly together. Although in reality, that's not always the case. Uh, but that's a part of it, right? Like these, the, 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 the promise of a headless commerce system is is there and I think it's it's you see most customers actually live up to the expectations that they have of the platform but it does require a certain digital maturity in the company in order to make it successful so what I mean with that is like the marketing people might have this this dream and this idea that suddenly with this headless platform you know that that ink our commerce thing is just a few clicks away obviously that's not really true and especially just simply getting the, the website up and running might require additional software solutions as well. And there needs to be someone in the company, like in the IT department that helps marketing understand and builds a clear roadmap of how do you bring this in a way kind of very almost low level kind of infrastructure uh, and, and architecture of like commerce tools. How do you bring that to a usable kind of set up for marketing and, and the, the business teams. So one of the things that I found great about working with you um, back in Bloomridge days <laughs> was that you really see the potential of technology kind of on a societal level, like like I remember even back then we were talking about the potential of content and commerce and you kind of got excited about not just, oh, we can enable a shopping experience that is supported by content in this very organic way, but you actually went a step further and said, for organizations that embrace this, if they do it right and if they do it with all the support they need and all the pieces moving together, they can make a completely different universe of shopping and, and it can be like a massive difference to their brand um, and it can make a really huge difference to their customer experience. So when you look at the potential of something like a commerce tools, how do you see it in that way? What is the, the bigger, grander societal potential if, if there is one? Yeah, well, I think apart from I think what a lot of people are talking about now with the pandemic going on and the fact that the entire way customers interact with, well, even like the brick and mortar stores, right? Like it's shopping has changed tremendously. So that's one thing where I think a, a system like commerce tools enables companies to adjust quicker than you would in a different way, but that's still not really going towards the society, you know, and making things better. Like, Content and commerce for me has been such a intricate part of what I've done for a very long time, right? I've talked about that story for a very long time, and I think, well, I'm obviously not the only one. I'm not claiming to be the the the, the one that actually came up with all of this, but it's it's been a part of what we've done in in uh, like the DXP world, but also in the commerce platforms to build out 
different types of shopping experiences. And I think right now, maybe that is even more needed than before. Although I think there's still a huge shift happening for the more traditional, let's say, brick and mortar stores or companies that are focused on that and that need to get online first and foremost or get online quicker, right? And replatform to adhere to the new normal. And I think once that is there, the technology like commerce tools enables you to explore and, and yeah, even experiment building out different shopping experiences. So that could be as simple as just uh, like an app uh, or the, these, the idea of those dash buttons that, that Amazon had at one point in time, but it could be a lot more than that as well. Like the VR and AR things that, that you guys have been working on, I think is also such a great example of, of enabling different ways of shopping. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm I'm kind of trying to decide in my head if I see a non-evil application of this. <laughs> like, part of me thinks, well, I don't want to talk about the morality of it. I just want to say that, like, for me as a as a shopper, in a way, um, I still get frustrated by how far away the shopping experiences that I get are from what I expect. And what I expect is just that they're instantaneous. Like there's, you know, we always talk about consumer expectations changing and, and whatever else. Consumer expectations are and have always been, in my opinion, that things should be immediate. <laughs> like, and, and we're all just trying to yes. get a little bit closer to it, you know? Um, no, I, I fully agree. And, and it's, it's like the shopping technology is obviously just one part of the equation. Like the, I actually ordered some stuff uh, and I just was on the phone just before this, uh, for recording this, just with the, the company to say, look, where is it, right? Like I've ordered this last year and it still isn't here. What's going on? Sending emails to them led to nothing. So I had to actually pick up the phone. And I think those kind of experiences are obviously still such a huge part of shopping no matter what. And, and while Commerce Tools is a great thing for companies to have and like the headless architecture enables them to do a lot of cool stuff if you're unable to just do the basics yeah then let's be honest that just sucks and in that sense you're completely right the instantaneous nature of of shopping or maybe the instant gratification that you're looking for when you're buying something cool or something you really need yeah that's that's i think it's going to be hard to necessarily get from online as much as you would get that in a store Well, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I do find that I I get that um, that impulse shopping thing happens all the time online. Anybody who's ever bought anything from an Instagram ad can vouch for that. You know, it's like it comes up. You know, you don't need it. You know, it's probably going to be crappy when you buy it. But if if it's done correctly and you literally there's like one touch checkout with PayPal or whatever, and you just order it in three minutes. In the, from the time you see the ad till the time you get the email that it's, it's been received. You don't even really have time to process, should I really be buying this? That's a little bit why I was I was talking about, is this evil or not earlier? Because um, because I am much more likely to get make those kind of purchases if the experience is easy. Yep. But that said, I mean, who are we to debate whether or not impulse buying is evil, right? Uh, yes, like I think what you'll see, like, you mentioned PayPal, right? I think that's that's one part of the of the thing, like the different payment methods that are available. 
But what I also see more and more, and those are part of the, the conversations I'm having with the technology partners, like there's more and more services that bring like, for example, like quick loan applications or installment type of payments to the shopping experience. Now, on the one hand, that's that's great, especially considering there is a pandemic and people might be having financial troubles and they really need to replace their their washing machine or something really important. But on the other hand, if it becomes really seamless to, to get a loan directly online with three clicks of the mouse and, you know, I'm not sure if that's necessarily uh, a, a good thing. But then again, uh, if, if that's where the market is going, yeah, then, you know, that's that's what's going to happen. Yeah, and I think also... I might be putting words in your mouth, but I think what I kind of hear you saying is it's it's about giving the consumer the full range of options of what they might have, want, or expect in a given experience. So if I'm in a VR simulated environment and I am, I don't know, I'm making this up, I'm like in some kind of showroom or who knows what, I'm, I'm scrolling my Instagram feed in VR Maybe it'll happen one day. And I see something I want, I should be able to buy it, right? Like it's 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 more about making making the option available. Would you say that's true? I, I would say so. I think like the morality of like for example offering loans, uh, like I think that's that's what happens in stores all the time already. So the fact that that's moving to online, I don't think that's necessarily that bad. It's just going to happen anyways. But I do think like the other side of that is right. Like if 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 the, I mean, I I read an article yesterday or or some some uh, discussion online about the the car dealerships and the fact whether or not Tesla having their uh, their stores is a good or a bad thing for the consumer in the end, right? And I think the the thing there you could argue that buy these newer type of shopping experiences and the fact that like a Tesla or even just getting a different type of car, if you could do that online with VR, you know, get the proper advice and then purchase a car and a loan directly from there, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, right? Like it's it's just all, it needs to have its own place and, and there's going to be people doing bad things with technology. That's always going to be what happens, I guess. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I'd much rather buy a car that way personally than than having to go to a store. Um, so we started talking, we already touched on this a little bit, but let's get into tech partnerships and marketplaces and extensions and all of that stuff. Can you just paint a picture of the world of B2B tech partnerships? Because you've been in it in so long in so many different ways. Um, and for somebody who might not even understand Honestly, it took me six years of working in tech before I was like, oh, partnerships are important. Why are they important? And what role do they serve for for the buyer and maybe for the end customer as well? Uh, where to start? Um, yeah, so I think there's, there's a couple of layers to that question. Like first, partnerships in the broadest sense, like there's a couple of types of partnerships, or at least within commerce tools, we distinguish between those where we say we have technology partnerships, which are different software vendors, right? So we work together with those vendors in a certain context. And then we have the uh, like implementation partners. So those are actually doing the implementation work for customers. So those two are different. Like for me, the role is primarily focused on technology partnerships. So let me let me start uh, 
there. Um, like technology partnerships are, I would say, crucial specifically for commerce tools. Like I think commerce tools provides a lot of capabilities out of the box, but there's a couple of things that we don't do. Like we're not a, as it's called, a PCI compliant payment platform, meaning we are not certified and nor do we want to be. Let's, let's start there. But we're not certified to handle payment information for example, right? You'll need a third party like an Agen or a checkout.com or those kind of platforms to actually do uh, handle the payment information and handle the transactions and making sure that money actually goes from the, the, the customer to the merchant. So you'll always need third party technologies with commerce tools in order to, to build that. Sometimes you'll need a CMS, right? And in other cases, like commerce tools provide some product information management capabilities, but in B2B scenarios or something where you need like a very advanced kind of workflow, it makes sense to look at a dedicated solution or maybe a dedicated solution for uh, product information management is already in place. So those technologies are all going to be pieces of the puzzle, you know, the overall solution that a customer will be building over time. Now, the thing is important there, I would say, is over time because it's not necessarily true that you have to get everything in the beginning, right? The benefit of a more composable commerce type of architecture as a customer is that you can build this out in uh, different stages. And for me, if you look at like what are partnerships that are important, like the way I communicate about this with the technology partners I work with is that I have basically two buckets where I say there's the primary type of partnerships and those are the things that I would consider to be part of the the core of the platform right like I mentioned a CMS or a payment provider those are partnerships that are actually important during our sales cycles and conversations with the customer because those are questions you really need to sort out in order to get started unless you want to give away all your products for free which is not that likely so you'll need to start there right those partnerships are way more important than the secondary type of partnerships that are nice to have or could be interesting at a different stage or are maybe even considered to be optional from commerce tools perspective so the reason i i mentioned this is because obviously partners have a lot of expectations as well right and especially with commerce tools doing really well and and getting the recognition from from Gardner and Forrester and, and really doing well in the market and becoming a well-established name is that partners sometimes come to us and expect, uh, well, basically a lot of uh, customers that they can directly talk to or, you know, be considered to be uh, uh, um, in, in a sales cycle or something like that. And that's the, just not the way it works and that's not the way we want to work because, and that's where implementation partners come in. Like ultimately, I think implementation partners are the third part that bring everything together like as commerce tools we can have certain relationships and certain preferences or you know we work well together with content stack or with agent but it is in the end it's up to the implementation partner that's going to help the customer to actually make sure that they bring everything together that the customer needs like they will be in a way i would say more of the neutral party that brings all of these things together for the customer And what's what's a marketplace? Uh, well, well, there's in, in 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 commerce. I think there's a lot of different definitions of marketplace. So there's obviously like Amazon uh, that have their own marketplace where you can, as a, a third party, 
can sell on the Amazon marketplace. Uh, on top of that, and, and that's what we called our integration marketplace. That's where we list our technology partnerships and the integrations we have available with third parties. So even in commerce tools, when we mention marketplace, I always have to be very clear about what, what it is that I do and you know, what the integration marketplace or if we talk about the marketplaces to sell on, which are different and there's even so many different platforms that do similar to Amazon, like a third party uh, selling on their marketplace. So when we talk about what you did for Commerce Tools when you came in, you said that they had a kind of scattered, not really formalized program, um, and you, you built it out into an integrations marketplace. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the partnerships, like, like many partnerships, right, it all starts usually quite opportunistic in the sense like, hey, we are in the same sales cycle together, or we have a lead, you know, you bring in these other parties that you work with and then you know you're you're suddenly you're a partner i think that's kind of the way we've done things before but part of like the the growth that commerce has gone through and the maturing like the maturity uh, of the company obviously is becoming a more enterprise system in a way right and part of that is also building out an ecosystem around our technology i think that's just incredibly important that some platforms sometimes forget that having the ecosystem where other companies or vendors, you know, built on top of your platform or where you basically have a, a joint interest that you're trying to, to build upon. I think that's incredibly important. So that's where I started is to really figure out, okay, these partnerships that we have now, how valuable are they, right? Are they still like even uh, important for today? Like there's been partnerships that we had in the past that were quite, uh, important and, and actually brought quite a lot of business, but considering certain things in the market changed, like for example, Adobe acquiring Magento as the as as in in a way a competitive offering to commerce tools, yeah, that changes the dynamic of the partnership and the value that the partnership has for well, honestly, both parties, right? So there was first looking at okay, what are the partnerships that we have, and then figuring out what are we going to do with them. So the first thing I did was figuring out okay let's let's think of what do we need to do and i think the the part that we wanted to focus on is at least highlight the partnerships that we have and 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 the new ones right that we're getting because we got a lot more inquiries as well over time have a centralized locations where customers can go through find these integrations and you know work with uh, their implementation partner to say okay what would be the the correct choice for us considering the requirements that we have and that's what we started with obviously for 2021 i have a lot of plans to to actually change that based on the lessons learned for the first year like we launched in april last year and overall i'm, I'm quite happy with the the traction it's gotten like we've added over 45 technology partners in in that time alone which i think is it's quite nice but now it's time to actually well, in a way, make it even more usable for customers and, and especially implementation partners in the long run. So basically, you came in to a kind of blank slate or at least a not very formalized slate in a digital landscape that was kind of crazy considering it was, when was this? It was during the pandemic that you did this, wasn't it? Yeah, it was before I joined before the pandemic. So uh, uh, 
it, that's when I started like the, the conversations and you know getting everything up and running. But we launched it during the pandemic. Yes, I want to get back to that, but <laughs> but basically you were you were um, tasked with making a a searchable and accessible and comprehensible suite of technologies available um, to the, a person who might purchase commerce tools so that they were able to see sort of what they could do with it in combination while at the same time handling the politics behind the scenes of actually making sure that the technologies involved, those people were happy enough with commerce tools or felt like they were getting enough attention or um, were featured in the right way. Am I kind of understanding the picture correctly? Yeah, I think that's that's somewhat correct. Like the the main thing I would say is that the when I joined, there wasn't really that clear of an assignment to say, okay, you know, build a directory for our technology partnerships. So I was kind of figuring out what to do. So I spent quite some time actually identifying, okay, what is the real need here? Looking at like involvement in, in like in sales cycles, for example, to talk to customers and to see the type of questions they're asking, to see the way we deal with rfps right because that's kind of where it starts so let me let me take you back to like the way i think about our customer base and it's kind of the question you asked before like in a way our customers on commercials i kind of put them into three different buckets so on the bottom level you have the shop in a box type of solutions that's the, the SMB market, right? The, the relatively smaller merchants and maybe someone that just needs to get their website up and running to sell the 20 products they have, then commercial is most likely not the right solution for them. So in that bucket, the, the shop in a box kind of solutions, that's not where commercials wants to be. Where Commerce Tools typically operates is more, and I, I dubbed them the headless heroes, but those are the type of companies that are large uh, technology companies almost, and they have their own development teams, and they bring plenty of complexity to the table. They might have a lot of different stores. They might have you know, multiple countries that I have to deal with, or maybe all of these different devices and channels that they're selling on. But the more complicated, basically, the better. Right. And those tiny companies are very digitally mature. So those guys, generally speaking, will know what to do. And they, they might be sometimes you talk to these. Right. And they're saying, well, do you have an integration with system X, Y, Z? They're saying, well, we have documentation on how to do it. And they're like, oh, OK, fine. You know, they don't need a pre-built integration or they don't necessarily need a lot of guidance in order to get things up and running because they usually have figured it out themselves before we even do right so so those customers are so mature that they don't really need what i'm doing i mean it might help and it might give them in a way kind of a stamp of approval if there's a technology partnership listed on the our integration marketplace that says oh okay so clearly these guys have a relationship right there there's an actual thing in place so good but they'll figure it out themselves now, in the middle between the shop in a box and the, let's say, the headless heroes, I would say that those are the fast mover kind of companies that are maybe not really digitally mature enough necessarily to figure all of this stuff out. So they are very reliant on partnerships. So both the implementation partner to help them, right, and to advise them on what technologies to use, but also in the uh, the need to have more pre-built integrations or at the very least to have that 
stamp of approval from commerce tools is even more important than in the other situation. So for me, it became clear that if you look at our traditional kind of sales cycles and the way we do things with, for example, RFPs, right? You get an RFP from a customer and they might ask certain questions around things that we definitely do not do. So maybe they're saying, hey, can we do A-B testing on the front end? And then we're like, well, we're a headless system. But if you look at our integrations that we have with these and these CMS solutions, they do provide that. So in that sense, right, we can say yes to the question Well, before we had to say no. So the integration marketplace is, is in a way just more aimed towards providing guidance to customers to figure out answers to questions that commerce tools would typically say no to and in that sense provide the credibility to partners like these technology partners to talk to our customers and say look we have done our homework we've done our due diligence and we've either in some cases built an actual integration that's reusable or in some cases because just the nature of the integration would kind of prohibit that have done our homework and know how this should work so that's I think what the integration marketplace, I quickly identified that that's kind of the direction we need to go in order to make sure that we can yeah, help customers primarily during these sales cycles when the, let's say the uncertainty about what does this project going to look like uh, to help tackle that. And what, how did you have this, this knowledge of what it should look like? Had you had experience previously with marketplaces, building them or using them and what did you see that typically went wrong, in your opinion, that you wanted to do differently? Mm, I don't think I've necessarily done that much differently. Like, ultimately, there's there's only a certain number of ways you could do that. I think the differently is coming up. <laughs> Let me put it like that. Like, so, so um, like, in, in previous roles, I've been involved in, in, like, adding solutions to integration marketplaces in that sense, right, to work in ecosystems of other companies. And as part of that, I've, I've obviously seen the process and I've seen how, how it operates. Like for me, I just wanted to make it easier uh, to work with. So in a, in a way, that's, I would say, both a blessing and a curse for, for me, at least. So what I mean with that is like a lot of, especially the, the bigger uh, companies out there that, that, that start the conversation with like, okay, you can be our technology partner, but you have to pay 25000 a year and... You know, otherwise we won't even speak to you. Like, I felt like that's not something that I want to start with until we have proven that there's the value there, right? Like both from, from commercials perspective as well as for the customer. So what I try to do differently in that sense is to lower the barrier of entry to our commercials integration marketplace for a couple of reasons, because obviously just honestly, like I also want to get as many integrations on there as possible, right? The more technology partnerships, the better. Then again, I also feel like it's it's kind of our duty to have a lot of options available. I think the probably the, the older name for composable commerce was best of breed, right? And I think in that sense, the best of breed thing means that customers can just pick the technology that they feel is best for them for regarding the, the requirements and the needs that they have. So maybe... You know, having a, a uh, the, the choice of solutions, despite it maybe being a bit a, a smaller type of company, you know, it, it could very well be that the technology that they bring is exactly what the customer need. So I was, in the, especially in the beginning, a lot more open to add a lot of different partners and uh, to the marketplace and let the let the market and the customers decide whether or not this is a, 
a partnership worth having in a way. So you were basically coming back to our discussion about what commerce does makes possible. It was about giving people the freedom of choice to kind of to, to see what's available out there. Yes. And that was, I think, at that point in time, you know, uh, also the, the, the best way to do this. What I realized and looking at our like our analytics and the way it's used, I think we've certainly achieved the goals that I set out initially, right? Like I mentioned, the helping customers during the initial sales cycle. Uh, it's it's very clear if you look at the analytics, for example, that you see that the retention of people is is in that sense, a bit lower than I would like it to be. So people don't really come back at a later stage. So, so for example, the retention over three months is, is just lower than I would like it to be, which means that I think in that sense, it, it does work during the initial sales cycle, right? The start of the project, customers go there, figure out what the type of technologies are that they could add to their overall solution. And they're like, okay, cool, you know, uh, we're done. But I would love for it to be a bigger part of every part of the life cycle, because like I mentioned as well, like we have these technologies that I kind of had these two buckets, right? You have the primary and secondary type of things. Like I think the secondary are definitely more focused on later in the customer life cycle, right? As soon as the project is up and running, maybe that's the point that you start thinking about search and personalization. That's not necessarily something you have to solve in, in phase one. So for, for me, for this year, a big part is to bring that more like as part of the overall customer journey to see if we can get more engagement during the uh, sales cycle or after the sales cycle, I should say. So once customers are actually going live to see if we can then increase engagement with the integration marketplace and actually help build a roadmap for not just phase one, but also phase two, three and four. Can I have a two-minute break? Yes, of course. <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> sure. Hello. Hello. You ready to resume? I, yeah, sure. 
this going like in the way you would hoped? I have no idea. <laughs> it's going well. Um, now we're going to get into the scary part of the interview. Oh. Well, okay. actually, let me ask you this. Have we covered your homework? I would say so. Like, I can talk about all this stuff for hours. So. But I think so. I think the story is pretty clear. I think you've explained really well what the role of commerce tools is and then what the role of partnerships is within commerce tools. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about you. So <laughs> one of the things I want to do on this podcast is just understand the kind of personal drivers and what it takes to do something that's good. So take a big Zen breath, think about yourself and your influences. Um, I wanted to hear, you know, in this process, it sounds like you were kind of, I don't know if it was by design, but you were basically thrown to sea and, and left to your own devices and kind of left to figure out, to, to fend for yourself and figure out this marketplace, it's more or less in isolation. Is that true? Um, yeah, actually, I would say so. And, and it was, it, it's definitely different than what I was used to. Uh, it's, it's the first, I'd say a couple of months were definitely a, a, a well, I'm not going to use the word struggle, but I think it was hard for me to figure out, okay, what is actually expected of me? Because I'm used to coming into an organization and getting a way more clear kind of assignment and like we want you to do this right or we want you to do a, a very specific defined task and and have very smart goals and i it, it took me probably a bit longer than i would have liked but it took me a bit of time to figure out okay okay so this is what people expect from me here right and in the end i have the freedom because Let's be honest, I don't think a lot of organizations give you the freedom as well. Or maybe they do, but you don't really know how to make the most of it, right? So I think the way I operate in, within commerce tools and get, get things done is probably exactly the opposite of what I did in the past. And that was something that grew organically and is, is also directly related to the fact that I was such a wide open playing field and I kind of had to find my own position in there and, you know, define my own sort of role and responsibilities. And so when it came to approaching this particular task, you mentioned that you started by listening in on sales calls and kind of thinking through the customer journey and then that that kind of led to you, it sounds like that also led to the standards that you set for the performance of this particular project. So its impact on the customer journey and whether or not people come back. Where did that come from? How did you, what was your sort of impetus behind following that particular path? Is that something you've seen before? Were you influenced by something uh, or how did you come up with it? Yeah, so I think there's the one difference between joining commerce tools and uh, like any previous 
endeavor I've done before um, is, and I think that makes such a huge difference, is is that I knew the organization already, right? I've, I've worked with commercials in a different context before, and I knew a lot of the people already. So I think that makes it a bit easier to well, almost like I want to say, be yourself, right? And and part of that is I already had friends in the organization and I knew people like quite well. And it was quite easy for me to ask for what I wanted or what I needed. And like being someone who is who's operated in the in the sales area, like in a commercial area for quite a long time, I, I think it was for me a very logical step to start doing that like ultimately we're all doing this for the customer right like partnerships like i mentioned before are crucial for commercials because ultimately they they will help our customers but they also help us close business and that's why i'm there right like i'm there to help commercials grow and to make commercials more successful and i think partnerships is a very important part of that but ultimately it's it's all for the customer like our customer is incredibly important obviously if they don't agree with what we're doing they're not going to be a customer so figuring out the the sales angle and seeing hey what's the differences between selling let's say the uh, a cms from a, a commerce platform where where is it the same like how how is this different what can i learn from this and 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 i think i'm i'm very grateful as well for like the, the opportunity I've gotten to actually do this. Like, I don't think anyone joining an organization get this this kind of freedom and, and the chance to really take some time to explore the challenge they have in front of them. So I'm definitely very lucky to be able to do that and, and to have be able to, you know, do this, yeah, exploration phase before actually figuring out how to tackle the problem. Did you have to face any pushback or do any convincing? Mm, not really. Like, no, I think I've, I've done like the, to get the, 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 like the, the freedom to do things. I already had that. I had a good relationship with, uh, uh, our chief product officer who I report into. So I already knew him as well. And, and he was just fine with whatever I thought was the, the best way forward. And I think the, the biggest, biggest difference in, in my approach to well, work, life, uh, whatever, I think is, is way more consensus driven now than it was before. Like, I think the what you were saying around, like you had a clear idea on where to start. I, I, I would say that that might be true, right? And then to a certain extent, I obviously had some some kind of angle that I had, but the, the big difference is that I really took the time as well to talk to a lot of the stakeholders in the organization to get their feedback, to get their concerns, and to really see, look, this is what I feel is the right way. What do you think, right? Getting that, uh, all that feedback and, and adjusting the plans where needed and making sure that we set the right priorities, I think all of these things helped pave the way to uh, let me do what I wanted to do. So that that was quite helpful. On the other hand, like as always in an organization that grows, when soon as other people join and they have, let's say, a similar role or responsibilities or that there's some overlap, then yes, there's going to be times when there is a bit of friction to figure out, okay, who does what and, you know, where's the 
responsibility of the one person start and the other one end. Like I think that's just part of business and part of being of a growing company. The biggest lesson I've learned over time through, well, probably a, a lot of hitting my head against the wall is, is to not take this all that personal, right? I think a lot of the things in the past were always such a big ego thing for me almost. And, and, and I still have to remind myself sometimes to say, okay, no, you know, this is, this is your ego talking. This is not necessarily what is best for the company or this does not, does not make sense, right? To make a big deal out of like, let's be honest. And I think that's also a big lesson learned and that makes work a lot easier if you don't take everything as personal because it's it's in most cases it's not right like it's it's clearly not yeah i want to highlight something that you said before though because i think it's also a signal of maturity and and what is the word ego suppression i guess to be able to go and ask other people for input you know, I, I constantly have to remind myself that the best way to avoid friction and conflict is just to bring people in earlier. But it's so it is, I think, to me, it seems like a sign of insecurity to just kind of go, no, I'm going to develop everything in my own little bubble and I'm going to do it the way that I want to, the way that I think is best. And then they they can deal with it later, you know? <laughs> oh, for sure. And I think, yes, uh, but also, like I had the luxury of, of just, like I had one assignment, right? Bring partners or sort of integrations kind of to the next level. That that was my assignment and there wasn't a lot of other stuff. Like I think as well, and that's also speaking from my own personal experience in the past is that it sometimes becomes like you're protecting your own like timeline in a way or your own calendar right because if other people get involved sometimes it gets very convoluted you suddenly have to do things that you initially didn't envision to be part of this or people suddenly take things away from you and then you're sitting there thinking like okay what is left for me to do right so i do think it's sometimes it's very hard when these roles and responsibilities aren't clearly defined or where people you know involving people is just a risk sometimes i think and that's, it's scary for sure, right? And and for me, the, the benefit of having the flexibility to, to do this the way I wanted to do and to really take into account this feedback without necessarily any major risks, because I only had one thing to do in a way, right? Like, even if someone would say, okay, well, we need to add this VR thing to it. Okay, well, fine. I don't, I don't mind, right? Like, I think it can fit into my schedule or I can put it somewhere in, in the, in the end in in phase four like i'm i'm in charge of this and i think that makes it so much easier if you have to adhere to someone else's timetable and other people come up with a lot of great ideas what you should be doing uh and you know involve themselves without necessarily having any uh well anything to do with the project that sometimes gets a bit frustrating i get that did you have any doubts that you would be able to do it well? Um, not necessarily doubts, uh, but I think like always, uh, there's there's always a couple of things that you underestimate or that you just, you know, didn't think were supposed to or would be such a big deal. And that turned out to be bigger deals than you would have liked it to be. So that changes the 
the timelines, for example, right? But having my own sort of project, like I was my own project manager and my own kind of guy that I had to complain to if timelines were shifted, so that made it easier. But there were there were times definitely that I thought, oh shit, I wish I would have known this or done this differently. An example for me would be uh, like the partnership contracts. Those things weren't really in place or at least not for technology partnerships. So I really had to work with our legal team to get those things, uh, those those contracts like uh, created and then, you know, and sent them all to the partners. And that was, uh, yeah, that took way longer than I anticipated. And I, I'm sure I have to postpone the launch because of that, like at least two or three times because it just took longer than I would have liked it to, but. Yeah, legal always. Yeah, be careful what you're always. saying now. <laughs> <laughs> I can record my own parts over again. So yes. <laughs> I'm not filtering myself, but man, it takes, uh, it always takes longer than you expect. You're so right. Um, but okay, so it sounds like you kind of, it sounds like it kind of came at this, this kind of perfect job where you're able to do your own thing, came at the perfect moment in your career where you suddenly gained the confidence to know that you were going to just do it the right way. Um, can you talk a little bit, and I know we're, we're coming up on time, do you have like 10 more minutes? Oh, I have. Is that okay? Yeah, well, I have until four or something, so. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Um, so, so can you talk a little bit about your career and and your trajectory and how you've kind of found yourself here um and and why you think this this may have been a kind of perfect match at the perfect time oh my career yeah so so i i always joke that that i always wanted to be a doctor right so and and, and even in job interviews i would always say that like i always wanted to go to medical school and in in the netherlands here it's it's all basically one big lottery whether or not you can be like a literal lot a lottery whether you can be a doctor yes or no and unfortunately for me i tried four times and never really gotten anywhere uh with that so i i went to university for you know uh for something completely different basically and i feel like i've always been searching for something like i wanted to be a doctor since i was like three years old right so i've always been searching for something where i feel like i could do something that was as important as saving lives. I don't think that's what I'm doing now. Let me let me start by that and saying that, right? Like, I don't think that's what happened. But I think if you look at my career, it's always been a, a, a way for me to be, uh, I don't want to say more important or be in charge, but maybe that's exactly what it is. And what I mean by that is like, I started as a, as many people, right? As a, as a developer. So I've done, development and and then as a developer you build these amazing things or at least so you think so you built this this piece of technology and then ultimately it turns out that the customer or your boss or whoever doesn't they they doesn't they don't understand it or something right so so what i thought then was like oh okay so in order to you know be a bit more in charge i just need to become a project manager so then i became a, a project manager which was probably the biggest mistake I've ever made in a career. Uh, and, and because that was clearly not for me, right? Like I like the creative side of things, but as a project manager, I would say the main responsibility you have is to say no, or at the very least to be very mindful of things like scope. So I was not a great project manager, right? I've done all the courses and, 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 and trainings and, and, and definitely 
learned how to deal with politics and you know it, it's it certainly taught me a lot of valuable skills but as a project manager no that's just clearly not for me so what that led to in the end is is basically i through well a bit random luck i guess ended up in in a, a role as as pre-sales and pre-sales was i think perfect for me right like i i like explaining things i like you know demoing things and and just the engagement with customers was was great i really enjoyed the process of figuring out what customers are saying what they really mean and how the software that i was demonstrating for example could solve these problems like that puzzle for me and having to do that in in almost real time was a big challenge for me and i really enjoyed that and i've done that with I think great success and also uh, enjoyed doing that for quite quite a long time. But the same problem kind of haunted me again where I was like, I want to be more in charge or something, right? Like I'm, I'm selling this software and in the end people make decisions that I think do not reflect what customers are looking for. So I went to do something else. I think in the organization I was at at that point in time with the stuff that was going on, I think the timing was wrong. And I also think, like you mentioned, the the maybe the confidence in order to say, okay, this is what we're going to do and this is how I'm going to make it happen was probably not there yet, right? So when I made that transition to commerce tools and actually got that opportunity to be a bit more, yeah, flexible and have my own kind of, you know, space to, to carve out my own role, I think that was perfect for me to find that confidence and also to help you know, built, yeah, actually something that I think was needed for the customer. So I basically think that thing that I was searching for all that time to be able to, you know, say, I think that this is the great thing to do and I'm just going to do it. I think the fact that I found that at Commerce Tools was just, well, probably it was bound to happen in a way because I've been searching for it all the time, but I think it's just I'm very grateful that I could actually find it at Commerce Tools for sure. It never made sense. I never drew that connection between being a doctor or being a surgeon. It was surgeon, wasn't it, that you wanted yeah. to be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never drew that connection before between that and what you're doing now, but that makes complete sense. I mean, if I think about your career trajectory as I've known it, you've always been the person that wants to dive right into having the final responsibility. like, And you want to be kind of independently in charge of making a thing that is complete and has a purpose and is good. So yeah, yeah, that completely makes sense to me. I mean, that's, that's exactly the role. That's basically the role of a surgeon. You, you're, it's kind of all on you. Your ass is on the line to save that person. Right. It, and, and you have to be willing to take that responsibility on. And, and I think that's definitely, um, that's definitely what's happened here. Of course, not in a saving lives kind of way, but it, it totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's still. I think to uh, even to today, like I, yeah, well, maybe especially today with the pandemic going on, where you know medical staff is definitely uh, doing very heroic things. I, I definitely don't want to put it in the same kind of uh, uh, the same importance, but yeah, it's it definitely has a couple of aspects there, and and being able to yeah, like you said, dive in and. And that's what I also liked about that uh, the the pre-sales part, where you're just 
sometimes you just have no idea what's going to happen, right? You're in a conversation, you're in a room with like, let's say 20 developers and, and a couple of marketing people. And all of a sudden you're like demonstrating and they're going to ask questions and you have no idea what, and you have to come up with an answer that is helpful. And that actually doesn't really say, okay, well, I'll send, when I get back home uh, to the, to my desk, I'll send you a white paper with all these answers in there because you know, in a lot of cases, especially with, with, let's say, the younger or less mature companies, that might not be the case. So you have to come up with an answer on the spot. And I always like that that pressure was, yeah, that's really what makes me tick. I think that's probably one of the harder things about the pandemic year for me is that that pressure is not as much there. Or even in this role, this pressure is only there if I create it. And not necessarily, like, if I don't create that pressure for myself, then... You know, it's also not necessarily going to be there. So I have to be really mindful of that as well, that I do need some kind of trigger to stay really engaged. That's a perfect segue to the last topic that I wanted to cover, which is the concept of good, good enough or better. Because indeed, in, in a lot of roles, in some roles, you get to be like that and 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 indeed have to think on your feet and you kind of know in the moment whether or not you've done a thing that's that's okay or not. But most of the time, we kind of have to be our own barometer of whether or not something is done well. And of course, there are also external parameters that we can set, you know, like you were mentioning, tracking the amount of engagement or retention, for instance, is a way to do it. And as a last section, I just want to explore a little bit more about this concept. So, you know, what in this role where you kind of have to be your own judge, what questions do you ask yourself or what standards do you hold yourself to to know whether something is good enough or better than good enough? Um, poof. That's, you saved the hardest question for last, right? I think that's, that's good. Um, so, yeah. Like, initially, you know, like, maybe even in my, my project management days, uh, like, you learn all these things about creating smart goals, right? And, and well, I, at, at that time, I always was like, well, I think you can you make everything sound smart almost, but whether or not it's actually measurable or, you know, simple enough to actually make a metric that you can use, I think is, I don't know. I never took it that seriously. Let me put it like that. That's probably why I was a horrible project manager to begin with. I do think I've kind of found a way to kind of use a similar sort of thing in, in my work, but it's still incredibly hard because sometimes you just have days where days and days, right? Where you just, I mean, meetings, where you're in meetings all the time. And, and those meetings are, let's say I've had days where I'm just in meetings with like five or six uh, potential technology partners. They're all probably not really well suited for what we're doing so it's it's just it feels like it's not really a fruitful conversation or it might not be fruitful in the long run so you know it, it's it just feels like you're in a way almost like wasting your time by having these conversations but then I also try to think of the bigger picture and saying okay look what what I'm doing here is being part of in a way and I you know in a way it's also part of marketing you know, I'm not part of the marketing team in my in my role, but it feels to me like the 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 outreach that we do, even conversations that lead to nothing, I think is going to be helpful with building a commerce tools ecosystem. 
you know, have, giving that that person that ultimately isn't a right fit for our technology partners uh, that we're looking for, giving them a like the the time to explain what they're doing, you know, having a good conversation with them, engaging with them in like just a very nice, meaningful way is ultimately going to help build an ecosystem around commerce tools. It's going to help commerce tools grow. I feel like if I do that part of my job right, even if it would be leading to only maybe one partner being added, you know, and and contributing only one of these 10 conversations I might have to my smart goal, I do think that's, that's something that is important. Add to that, that we were in a pandemic. So you could argue that I probably was a lot more lonely than I would have been if I were in the office. So certainly it was great to have conversations with people as well, but it is something that I think it's, I, I try and I'm not that great at it, but I do try to find other aspects that are maybe a bit more fuzzy or less well-defined that are also important in the role that I have. Right. So it's not just about these these smart goals necessarily. I think it's also about doing just doing the right thing and you know giving even don't be arrogant. Like even though we might like we're not that huge of a company yet, right? So I feel like it's not the right place to be arrogant, but I also don't really like it if your area like I've been on the other side of that conversation where you're trying to be a partner and then with the in in the combination with a bigger company and they're so arrogant and like I said they they just ask you to pay 25,000 euros or something and otherwise they won't even talk to you and and that's not what I'm trying to do so that for me becomes part of my am I doing the right thing kind of conversation but yes feeling like it doesn't always feel right if you like spend let's say two or three days in a similar sort of pattern going through these conversations or, and, and then have nothing to show for it. And I, I spoke to like our chief product officer about this as well. Like, like the, the role in itself, and, and it's the same for him in a way, it's like, it's not always leading to a concrete outcome. Right. And, and that makes it hard to measure your own effectiveness. Like, looking at the goals I had for 2020, for example, I don't think I've done as well as I would have liked. Like I would have gotten more engagement, right? More retention. I would have liked more integrations or something. But ultimately, I think overall, the if you look at the, the high level goals of what we're trying to do, I think I've contributed to that like in a substantial way. And whether or not that led to the complete smart goals and then if I you know I'd achieved the exact number that was set on the goals probably not as much but if you look at the bigger picture yes I'm I'm content and that's what I'm trying to do but like I said I'm not that great at it sometimes you definitely get frustrated with the lack of actual outcome of what you were doing for sure do you know the NASA janitor story no you must have heard this one it's about the um, the idea that this, this, I don't know, it was Dan Ariely or some organizational psychologist tells this story or maybe he did it. Anyway, it's about the idea of like if you're a janitor at NASA, you shouldn't like if you just look at your job as like scrubbing toilets, then yes. that's like that's just scrubbing toilets. That sucks. But if you look at it as you're doing your job so that people can go to space and explore like land on the moon, like that's a whole different reframing of your job and that actually makes people more 
satisfied by by knowing that their job ladder is up to something bigger. Um, so yes. well, I think that's great if you come up with it yourself. I think if your boss tells you that, then I don't know, <laughs> right? I mean, like if your boss says, "No, you're 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 also like you might have a shitty job and you know might not like what you're doing, but you're you're part of a very important thing." Then maybe that's not a. That's a very good point. Yeah, because I think one thing I noted down here was <laughs> man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl. I don't know if you've you've read yeah, it or heard, heard about, about it, but like sure. it's about it's all about having your it's about tying your personal identity to uh, to something bigger. And while that's a very existentialist big way of looking at it, that's a, that's kind of what you've described. It's like for yourself, you have to define the bigger goal that you know you're contributing to. And if you feel that you have done your best to progress towards that goal, that in itself can be a sort of enough for you to know that you've done a good good job, in quotes. Yeah, and I think it's also valuing the, like, everybody knows the, the, the person who scored the goal in, like, a soccer match or something, right? But the assist is obviously just as important. I think, especially in the past for me, like, maybe my own ego or arrogance or something sometimes just got in the way with having a bit more of a supportive role like I realize as well with what I'm doing that maybe I won't necessarily be the guy that builds the most cool fancy integration and in the end I'm just listing it on the on the marketplace right it's it's just it's it's a different perspective in a way that sometimes being more supportive is also valuable like you can't just all be the lead in the movie or something right and and that's i think part of my less lesser ego or or something like that like i think that's a part of it that's something i'm gonna have to think about how um being less egotistical can actually make you better at your job. Of course, that's true. <laughs> but uh, never thought about it till now. Yeah, well, it, it's more about like, like you said, right? Like, how can you be successful? And that's what I mean. Like, you, you can be successful by just, you know, supporting people to be successful. Like, I think in previous roles, I always had such a desire to be noticed or something, right? I always, and I think that's probably part of like more of an imposter syndrome kind of feeling. And I think in that sense, I've maybe, maybe the word is matured, I don't know, but grown uh, to, to, well, to kind of look at that in a slightly different way and see like, okay, look, it's, yes, it's great, right? And I, I feel like I have great ideas and everybody should obviously do what I say, but, well, is it really that important? Like, is that the thing, like, you're a hill to die on right now? May, maybe not, right? And there's multiple ways to do things and ultimately if and, and maybe consensus is not always the best thing to search for that everybody kind of agrees with what you're doing but yeah there's no harm in in adjusting your idea to you know uh, make room for others as well or to just say look i'm gonna let you do this one and i'll just assist you in any way i can and then you know together we're gonna make this successful rather than being that guy that jumps in head first and and saying i'll solve this problem because yeah it's 
there's a time and a place for that in some cases. And if there's definitely something that you're like, oh, this is clearly up my alley because I've done this for 15 years, then sure. But if it's just someone else doing the work that you would have preferred doing or would have liked doing, yeah. Well, maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, that's definitely a big part of being a well-adjusted human at work that <laughs> I think everybody has can do work on. Um, so I wanted to maybe end on a high note <laughs> and um, I you've already... to oh, sorry, what you're saying. Like, I think I wonder, and that's, that's just maybe also a question towards you for the like 2020 and pandemic and the the... Like for me, this this job, even last year at, at commercials, because I'm based in Amsterdam, so there's a relatively small office and most of the people that work there are customer facing. So they're either at the customer at that time when travel was still a thing, remember, a long time ago. Uh, but like I was already working from home quite a lot. So you're you're forced in a way behind your computer and in your own sort of little bubble. And I do wonder what that does to these kind of, things like like what I mean is like you don't see your colleagues every day and there might be less friction like do you think the in that sense the pandemic and the fact that everything is remote is making that easier or would you say it making it harder I think it depends on the person and the project because for me personally I've struggled a ton to know whether like, it feels like I'm just working in a vacuum. And it's really hard to know if I'm doing anything that's actually making any kind of impact. Because the work that I do, marketing, is so much based on, as much as I hate that, is based on people getting excited about what you're doing, like, internally. Um, mm -hmm. And I still am not yet at your level of being able to call up 15 people and say, hey, I'm working on this. Can you give me your input? Because... I just consider that to be kind of a waste of time. <laughs> um, so in a way, for me, it's made it harder. And it's been a really long adjustment to kind of set my own standards for myself, which is part of the reason I came up with this podcast idea. Um, and yet, perhaps for for other people, it, it, it is like you're saying. In fact, it's reduced some of the the tension and the friction. And personally, like, I'm glad to not have to go into an office <laughs> just as much as I know it benefits me <laughs> in, in some ways because of that collaboration. Yeah, I would say I miss it. I really do. Like, in the first six months of, of 2020, I was like, this is the best thing ever. And I'll never step foot on a plane uh, at, at 4 a.m. in the morning to go to London or something ever again. Um, I, I think... I miss it because it's quite easy to be just in your own bubble, at least what I noticed, right? Like I said, I have these days where you just have five conversations and, and that's it with, with like not necessarily coworkers. I think it's hard to stay involved or at the very least it's hard to, like I'm not going to say I missed a water cooler talk or, you know, but it's, it's, I think you miss some of the intricate things that are going on that could help you move things forward. Like if I, I have to figure out like what are the type of technology partnerships I should reach out to, for example, like it's now I really need to start having like actually plan meetings and have conversations with people about that. And it needs to be way more of an 
actual active thing that you do. And I think in a lot of other cases, or at least when you're in an office together with people, like this is more of a, maybe even more of a coincidence, right? That this kind of thing just happens because they, they mention it and you're like, oh, that's a great thing that you're saying that because blah, blah, blah. But I also might be romanticizing that a bit, uh, you know, because a lot of times you're also just talking about anything but work. But let's be fair, that's probably also something I missed. So, you know, who knows? We'll see what this year will bring for us. Yeah, I think part of the part of the serendipity of working, and I've always wondered whether this is like, this is how good work gets done or if it's just how work gets done. But it's so true that at least in the nature of our jobs, which are strategic and they kind of rely on idea generation in a in a weird way, right? Like solution generation. So often you do the quality of your work or at least the, the moving forward of your work is is reliant upon you picking up some idea from somewhere and integrating into your work. Like that, that always happens to me. It happened to me before this and it still happens to me now. But indeed, I've had to find different ways to do it. So now I listen to way more podcasts. I read way more industry stuff than I ever did before because I don't get that same kind of input from people around me that I used to. Yeah, um, yeah I do think that that's a way that things have, have been done. And even if you are not talking about work, I still think that makes its way into your brain somehow because... You know, the weird way that brains work that nobody really understands, but it is that you, you're always kind of making connections and processing with things and, and bridging ideas that don't necessarily fit together in a way that actually moves you forward towards a solution. Um, yeah. That's right. Like that's how they've shown psychedelic assisted therapy to work is by allowing your brain to make more connections. So I do think it's really important. Yeah. And the fact that right now everything has to be such a conscious thing and if you do it, like if you set it up, I think that, I mean, I'm, we haven't done that many like virtual drinks or something with coworkers that much. I think I've tried to set it up once and that failed horribly because it's just people looking at each other and people not showing up because of other things or, you know, and you're just basically sitting there and like, okay, well, that's fun. But then again, our Christmas party that we did uh, remotely with everybody was actually one of the most fun things and social things i i would say i've done last year right so it's sometimes it, it works if you if you plan these things but i think it's it's incredibly hard to say okay well every monday at 10 30 we're all gonna dial in and exchange ideas i think that will quickly die and maybe there's companies where that works or maybe you know it's with a certain set of people that that would work i think for me i would i would hate that right? wow if I were in an office, probably at 1030 on Monday, I would be, you know, talking to everyone that that's there and just, you know, having a, having a great time. But if you're forced that in a digital setting, I'm not necessarily sure it works, unfortunately, or at least not for me. Yeah, I completely agree. It's like it becomes something that you dread versus something that just happens <laughs> to yeah. you whether or not you like it and then eventually you kind of end up liking it at least that's what it was for me with like friday drinks it's like one of those things you go ugh, like i don't want to stay for drinks and then three beers in you're like this is great <laughs> yeah. i'm having such a good time exactly and now i'm talking to someone that i haven't spoken to in like a very long time yes. and yeah for sure exactly um okay so to round off the podcast i wanted to ask you two more questions um, one of them was, can you give a, an example of a customer? I don't know who, if you know offhand who you're allowed to mention publicly, but if you could give 
an example of a commerce tools customer, especially if they've, you know, they've used your particular integrations marketplace um, and kind of tell that story? Uh, that's a hard one because I honestly have no idea who we can name. Like, I think I would, in the context of this, I would say uh, that Burberry that we both share, right? Like, uh, that, that's a contest that customer. Is it? Is it? Yes. Right? Or not? And now, now yes. I'm doubting myself. Lego? Well, no. Burberry is a, a shared customer, yes. yes. So is Lego, but I think Burberry we're more, more allowed to name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so... Um, but I honestly have no idea. Like, I, I honestly don't know who's really using it. It's, it's very <laughs> okay, hard fine. to measure, really. Uh, maybe, maybe, let me, let me try a different angle. So, so what I think, uh, where you see a lot of adoption from, the, the market in the in the broader sense is is definitely with our system integrators like our implementation partners like what I see a lot of them do and I think that's that's another side effect that I didn't initially think of when I started the integration marketplace but I see a lot of these SIs built a almost a solution with a lot of the integrations that we have available so for example like an SI might build their own go-to market around uh, the, the, the Mach architecture, right? The, the headless architecture. And they're saying, okay, you know, our preferred CMS of choice is, is content stack and we bring uh, commerce tools to the table and we uh, have uh, Agen as the payment provider and we add Algolia as, as the search engine of choice. And all of these things combined is what makes our solution. So whenever we talk to customers, especially if they're let's say less uh, digitally mature and they need to figure a lot of this stuff out and they really need to adopt this this mindset uh, as a for headless architecture and the composable commerce we bring all of this stuff to the table so for me a big part of of like the success that I didn't really see because obviously there's going to be there were customers that found uh, a third party that they were looking for but I think that solution partner area like the solutions built by partners that is something that i really did not see and that's probably even more of an example of one and one equals three that makes sense and strange i also wouldn't have thought of that um so okay last question is basically tell me the the future what is, what is the, this program that you've now set up what does it mean for the, the future of commerce tools? Maybe even the future of commerce. Tell me, tell me what, what is, what is the story you see unfolding over the next year plus? Yeah, that's actually the right up, up the, um, what I said before that the, the solution partners, right? Building solutions is becoming an important part of what the direction of the integration marketplace so the, the 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 big goal i have for myself for this year and and i already mentioned like the retention right i want to increase the retention so the the big move that we're going to do with the integration marketplace is kind of almost rebranding it or relaunching it as more of the solution center the solution center will then be a bit more focused on the broader 
solution. So that has to do with best practices, that has to do with reference architectures, that has to do with, you know, a lot of different areas that right now, honestly, don't really have a place in our, in the way we communicate with developers, for example, like we have a, a brilliant documentation website, but documentation is by nature, obviously more focused on actually documenting the APIs and documenting how it works. But a lot of this stuff that we're talking about here, especially with what SIs come up with, the integration partners come up with to build a more of a point of view on the challenges the customers face. It's more thought leadership than necessarily documentation, right? So the transition that I want to make with the integration marketplace is effectively roll it into a broader solution center. So in there, you can find solutions to challenges that you have to deal with. And those could be as simple as saying, okay, I need a payment provider which are the ones that are available, right? And, and and that's one area. On the other hand, you could also say, no, we have like, we want to increase conversion. How do we do this? Like, how do we do this in the context of a headless system where you have to deal with multiple solutions together, right? You have to deal with the, the CMS might play a role in this or maybe it, a better assets, right? Digital assets that are better quality or maybe even 3D visualization of products or, well, the, the sky is the limit, but all of these things can fit into that more broader question around, okay, how can we make a better customer experience? How can we build a better solution for our customers? So the transition from the integration marketplace to the solution center will enable us to do that. And it will enable our implementation partners to really highlight the solutions that they're bringing to the table and market those accordingly. Because I don't think it necessarily has a place on the customer or on the partner's website specifically. It might not have a place on our website as commercials, but I think having that in a more specific place where these kind of solutions can be highlighted in the broadest sense of the word, I think that's going to be incredibly helpful, especially also with that retention, right? To bring people back to our solution center to find answers to problems or, you know, to improvements that they would need in a later stage. So yes, they're up and running, everything works, but okay, how do you go about increasing the conversion? How do you go about optimizing the back office, right? Like order management, maybe your product information management, like what are some of the answers in those specific areas and bringing those solution partners, uh, the, the the vendors of solutions and the implementation partners bringing everybody together, I think is going to be very helpful. And, and if we have a channel specifically dedicated to that, I think that's going to help all of us tell a better story. Because as an industry, I think as a headless kind of industry, we have that challenge that it's becoming quite easy from a technical perspective. I think that's one of the things I quickly realized that my job is in in essence, if you look at it from a technology perspective, quite boring, because basically there's like three or four ways where you would integrate with commercials and that's kind of it. And from a technical perspective, it's not that challenging, but from a functionality perspective and how do you bring all these moving parts together? I think that's where more of the challenge lies. And that's where I would definitely like to focus more in the, in the next year. Yeah. And it sounds like it's also going to increase the relevance of that particular marketplace or solution center or whatever you call it, this particular project for the headless heroes audience, right? For sure. Because like the, one of the, the, the things that I 
like I mentioned, like one of the things that I might have wanted to improve upon in the, like what I've liked to do better is the availability of integrations. And what I mean, that's like, like a lot of times there is a lot of customization that still needs to happen on the side of the customer in order to get things to work. Right. And I think sometimes that makes sense because integrating into an ERP platform, I think if you could do that in a generic way without a lot of rework, you, you could maybe even get the Nobel prize, uh, you know, to, if you're able to do that kind of complicated stuff. On the other hand, uh, there's, there's a bunch of integrations that are suitable to make reusable or something, but the, the headless hero type of customers, right. That have their own architecture already set up. They might have their own microservices already or middleware or all these technical things already set up. They, they will not use that integration in the way it's built anyways. So that's where I think documentation is way more helpful and it could be so way more helpful for our implementation partners if they have this the best practices properly documented or you know that we together with two vendors really define okay this is this is what you need to do in order to get all of this stuff working together and then provide because our SI partners like I mentioned are already building these solutions right so these custom integrations in a way are more built in in the context of that specific solution than that it's something that is usable for all customers so it's more of their ip that they're using and that they're building out so it's it's definitely targeted at uh yeah the broader group and providing more guidance than it's necessarily providing code because the value of code is in some cases more limited than i would have expected it to be yeah, I think that we've noticed that with Contents Tech as well. I mean, we've excelled in large part due to our exceptional customer service. And that's something that I found surprising is that customers of a headless system, which you'd normally think like, no, they just want to get it and plug it in and it's done. They really value that strategic input about how to do things correctly and how to put all the pieces together right. And then also how to derive value from it in the best way. Yeah. For sure. And, and yeah, and, and I think we're on the road to bring that, uh, like to the, to the environment or we're on the road to bring that to our customers with this, this kind of solution center that we're looking to launch or basically transition the integration marketplace into, I think that will definitely make that even, uh, more available to our customers for sure. Awesome. I'm going to hit stop on the recording. Cool. If you're good with that. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Let me just do that so I don't lose anything.